Hello, friends out there in Radio Land. My name is Harry Kaysen, and this half-hour program is a review of current movies. It's called Movie Night. Ah, but it's on during the day. That's because Movie Night refers to a person, a K-N-I-G-H-T, a defender of the realm. I'm someone, perhaps like yourself, who appreciates and even reveres the art of cinema. I have been a Hollywood writer for movies and TV, and also a director and even an actor, which can only happen in Hollywood, though I'm very fortunate now to reside here in lovely Cape Cod. As a reviewer, perhaps I might guide you, dear listener, to what you may or may not want to spend your time on. I'm not here to criticize other filmmakers, knowing firsthand what a tricky world that can be. I'm here to recommend movies I admire. WOMR being such a kind and welcoming station, there's no need for snarkiness, now is there? Over the next 30 minutes, I'll be reviewing four current feature films. Dog, Sharper, The Swimmers, and the one film that is my current favorite for this episode. I'm keeping it a secret to hope you'll stay tuned in. Perhaps you've seen these movies, perhaps not. Perhaps you've been hesitant to take the time for someone else's dream. Allow me to suggest otherwise, as your humble servant, your movie night. During my five decades in Tinseltown, I was pleased and privileged to make a few friends, and I'll be interviewing one of these lovely people each episode. My guest today is the fine actor Charles Shaughnessy. You may remember him from The Nanny with Fran Drescher, or if you're a soap opera fan, you may know him from Days of Our Lives or his current outing on General Hospital. He's a charming Englishman, and he's also, wait for it, the Right Honorable Fifth Baron Shaughnessy. That's right, he's Lord Shaughnessy, though he once told me, smile on his face, the best thing about having a title, Harry, is that I get to eat in the dining room of the House of Lords. I asked him if they served chicken a la king. Ha ha. So stick around. He's great fun. And that wonderful accent. I even asked him about the upcoming coronation. What's more showbiz than that? It's appropriate there'd be a baron for a guest on a show titled Movie Night. Let's get to our first film here. It's called Dog. It was written by Reed Carolyn and Brett Rodriguez. It was directed by Reed Carolyn and Channing Tatum. It stars Channing Tatum, Jane Evans, Kevin Nash, and Corianka Kilcher, and a Belgian Malinois dog whose character is named Lulu. So, the story here is basically a buddy picture, wherein one of the buddies is a canine. Not the most original concept, but in my opinion, the way it's presented is original. Both man and dog are ex-military, both of them with post-traumatic stress disorder. Pretty serious cases, both of them. Channing Tatum's character is named Briggs, and Briggs is feeling lost in the civilian world, anxious to get back to combat. Except he can't pass the psych evaluation because basically he's too messed up. But a sympathetic commanding officer offers Briggs a chance. Lulu the dog, as much a combat veteran as Briggs, is expected to cross country at a funeral of his previous handler who was killed in action. Lulu's presence would mean the world to the family of his fallen vet. All Briggs has to do is take the dog on a road trip and drop him off. Then the commanding officer will put in a good word for Briggs and hopefully get him reevaluated for active service. One problem. Lulu is a handful. Sometimes an amusing handful, sometimes a dangerous and rather heartbreaking handful. Like I said, PTSD. On a personal note, my brother is a veteran, and though he doesn't quite have diagnosable PTSD from his time in the Gulf, 
Once he has a few drinks in him, all this quiet and rather shy guy wants to show off his, his formidable combat skills. Makes me rather sad. To say it's tough of what we demand of our warriors would be a gross understatement. Now, I'm not saying this is a tragic film, it's not, but within a usually amusing concept of man and dog versus man and dog, this film doesn't hesitate to show true feeling. And Channing Tatum is very likable, as always, this time as a guy who can't quite believe his body and mind don't exactly behave the way they used to. We're pulling for him all the way. I read an interview with Channing Tatum, and as it turns out, this movie is loosely based on a road trip he took with his own dog, who was fading. It was Channing's way of spending time and saying goodbye to an old friend. But I'm making this movie sound tragic again. It's more of what I'd call well-rounded, because it's also funny, unpredictable, and warm. And there's a real dog as a co-star, not some computer-generated shadow puppet. The chemistry between dog and man does come through. Is this a movie for kids? Hmm, well, mature kids, and dog lovers of pretty much every age. Here's to our veterans. This is a film I believe they'd all appreciate and enjoy. All right. Our next film is called Sharper. It was written by Brian Gatewood and Alessandro Tanaka and was directed by Benjamin Caron. It stars Julianne Moore, John Lithgow, Sebastian Stan, Justice Smith, and Brianna Middleton. This film is a twist-and-turn movie, and boy, are there twists and turns here. It's about con artists at the highest level. No, not the kind you vote for. The kind that gleefully and skillfully trick people into giving up their hard-earned scratch. In slang terms, that type of person used to be called a sharper. I'm going to give away just a fraction of the plot because each twist is so expertly done, I don't want to spoil any surprises of this very surprising film. Brianna Middleton plays a down-on-her-luck young girl who was drafted into the con game world by the very slick Sebastian Stan. Julianne Moore plays Sebastian's exasperated mother, all too aware of her son's shenanigans, and John Lithgow plays the billionaire Julianne is dating. Justice Smith fits into the picture as an innocent bystander who falls prey to a major hustle. Now, everything I've just told you is true, even though most of it is a lie. You see, pulling the rug out from under you is this film's raison d'etre, pardon my French, and just when you think you know where the story is going, it tricks you yet again. But I have to pause just for a moment to heap some personal praise on Miss Julianne Moore, who's wonderful in this film, or pretty much any film she's in. I was lucky enough to run into her in a restaurant in Los Angeles a few years back. I was with a mutual friend. We were asked to sit at Ms. Moore's table. Well... Julianne Moore is everything you would hope for. Kind, welcoming, witty, very down-to-earth, and I had to constantly remind myself not to stare. That's how serenely beautiful she was. She puts the star in star quality. Obviously, I'm a fan, helped in no small part by this movie. Anyway, I won't tell you anything more about the plot, except that it's quite a bag of tricks played by an expert cast, led by Ms. Moore, directed by a crafty director, and written by a diabolically clever writer. If tumbling down a series of rabbit holes sounds like your mad cup of tea, you'll love this movie. Just don't turn your back on it. You're listening to Movie Night on WOMR 92.1 and WFMR 91.3 on your FM dial. The next film is titled The Swimmers. It was written by Sally El Hosseini and Jack Thorne. It was directed by Sally El Hosseini. 
It stars the real-life sisters Manal Issa and Natalie Issa, and also Matthias Schweighofer and Achman Malek. Okay, this is a true-life story, and it's nothing less than astounding. We follow two teenage sisters in Syria from a decade ago. They're both students and competitive swimmers with their father as their coach, and the girls dream of perhaps one day getting to the Olympics. Except their country is starting to be torn apart by war, as it still is. Now, with death and destruction increasing on a daily basis, their parents face a wrenching decision. The girls must somehow get themselves out of Syria and try and make a break for the relative safety of Europe, hoping against hope they can find a foothold there and then send for their parents. At least that's the plan. The long, safe route to Europe is a land route. The short, dangerous way is the water route. I'm not giving too much away to let you know the girls end up having no choice but to take the water route, like so many other refugees have done, some to their utter peril. So yes, this is a refugee story. Miss El Hosseini, the director, handles her duties with beauty and great sensitivity. We get to know these girls intimately. We care for them. We understand their fears and their determination. I've not seen a recent movie centering on North African refugees like this, but it's a welcome addition in my book. This is not political. We see these girls as real people, faced with life and death decisions at practically every turn. Nothing is gratuitous here. It feels as, this, as if this is exactly what these girls and their fellow refugees had to endure. Yet, it's not all grit and grind either. There are people they meet along the way that give them hope, that give them a reason to continue on. I found the entire enterprise here very rewarding and worthwhile, and it opened my eyes as to what a significant portion of the world is facing right now. Here's to the real-life sisters it's based on, their courage, their love, their determination, and here's to the plight of all current refugees. It's now time for my honored guest. He is Charles Shaughnessy, an actor best known for his leading role on the CBS sitcom The Nanny, where he starred for seven years alongside Fran Drescher. He's also been a longtime leading man on the soap Days of Our Lives and is currently the number one villain on General Hospital. Ooh. Not only is he a star of stage, screen, and television, he's also a graduate of Cambridge and is an English lord. We'll be talking about that unique aspect of his life along with other showbiz adventures because he also starred in the movie I directed, A Midsummer's Hawaiian Dream. Here he is, Sir Charles Shaughnessy, fifth Baron of Shaughnessy, my friend and colleague, Charlie. How are you, sir? I'm good. You're the first actor I've had. So let me ask you a couple of actor questions. Actory questions. Actory questions. Uh, what makes a good director from an actor's point of view? You know, actors um, are usually, um, they don't really know why they, what they're doing half the time. Uh, they can't <laughs> see themselves. It's right. sort of really instinctual. And so sometimes their instincts are tasteful and sometimes their instincts are not so tasteful. So a good director, I think, creates the right sandbox for an actor to try different things and um, is able to recognize what's tasteful and what isn't and to bring sure. out that the best, you know, the, the best and the most tasteful, the most um, interesting performance out of an actor. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So in that same vein, would the opposite of that be a bad director? I think, yeah, I think a bad director is someone who closes all that down, who, for whatever reason, either um, 
has a very set idea as to what they want and really want the actors to simply sort of color in the lines that he's already drawn and is is more of a kind of autocrat than a collaborator. Mm. You know, the best of these sort of collaborative arts, I think, like theater and uh, films and opera and things like that are collaborative. So each each actor, each participant brings something. So a director creates an environment and is a sort of tastemaker. Um, and, and, and a director who just sort of imposes a vision, I don't think it's going to be exciting. God, you know, you, God. And you can see it in movies. You can see yeah. movies where you're aware of it being a director's vision and the actors are going through the motions and they're delivering on the vision, but there's a lack of um, genuine excitement and, mm-hmm. and creativity. It sort of comes across as a bit bland. My experience with the British actors and American actors, there just seems to be a different point of view as to how they approach not just acting, but but the profession itself. There's every time I've been in London and been around British actors, they just seem like they're professionals. They seem like they're doctors or lawyers or scientists. There's somebody that's that seems to be really dedicated, as opposed to well, you've been on soaps. I've been on soaps. A lot of models, a lot of very pretty people, but they it seems to me they're not taking it quite as seriously. Am I over? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd actually almost go in the opposite direction. I, I, I think that British actors take it less seriously than American actors. And I think for me, that's the problem. If you're going to compare the two, the problem, the, you know, the big generalization is an American, sure. actor, particularly the less experienced ones, take it too seriously. An English actor will see it as just a job. It's a job that they do, and they're incredibly lucky to be paid to do what they love doing. But it's A, a job, and B, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. And so an English actor will always want to be having fun. And I think a lot of American actors feel that if they're having fun, they're not doing something right. Mm -hmm. That if they're having fun, they're not suffering enough. It's It's not internalized enough. It's not... You know, an, an American actor will talk about how, you know, I just need to get away from this. It's been such a traumatic time, this movie, because I've been so um, deep into the character. I need three weeks to detox. Um, and an English actor would shake their head and go, what are you talking about? <laughs> would you try acting? You finish the job and you go get a pint of beer with your mates and you go home and you get ready for the next one. <clears throat> <laughs> Now, uh, your dad was a a mover and shaker on a TV show that's still considered one of the best that ever was, and certainly a precursor to a lot of things that we're seeing these days, talking about upstairs, downstairs. Can you talk a little bit about your remembrances of him working on that show when you were a young person? Absolutely. I remember very well. It happened when I was 15, 1970. And like all writers, like anyone in this profession, you have lean years and good years. And I remember at the time it was a very lean year and dad was was very concerned. He had been working on a children's series um, for a producer that he really didn't like and was really miserable in the job. He took it because he needed to put food on the table and things are really quite tight. And I remember him having coming home one day at supper. We had a conversation. He said he had been to see a friend of his who was a producer called John Hawksworth, who had asked him to meet with him 
to talk about uh, a sitcom that two actresses had had pitched oh. to John Hawksworth, Sagittar, and they had pitched this sitcom about two maids in a Victorian house. Um, and John and my dad sat down and my dad said, you know, this is kind of my life. I grew up in a big um, household uh, where my stepfather was a query to the king. So it was that sort of uh, world. It mm -hmm. was a generation later. Um, but he said the most interesting period is not Victorian, but Edwardian. And I think we should make it a one hour drama. And I think we should not just focus on the maids, these two funny Cockney maids, but make it about the whole household, all the servants downstairs and all the family upstairs. And, and that's what they then decided to do. And my dad wrote the Bible and sure. the characters. Um, and I remember very well, I remember me saying, you know, what are you going to call it? And he said, upstairs, downstairs. And I remember this little pissy 15-year-old know-it-all. And I said, that's a terrible title. It's, <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like some sort of cheap Norman wisdom comedy, you know, upstairs, upstairs <laughs> in my lady's chamber. I said, it'll that'll never fly. <laughs> and he said, Well, thank you for your opinion, Charles. Thanks for your opinion. Yes, go back to your room. Uh, yeah, you can go back and study whatever you meant to be saying. For the benefit of our American audience, can you tell us your complete full name? My complete full name, including my Catholic. Um, confirmation name is Charles George Patrick Mark Shaughnessy, but um, now also Lord Shaughnessy, fifth Baron Shaughnessy of Montreal and Ashford County Limerick. My, my, Canada and Ireland. How lovely. So a bit of Canada. In fact, my family uh, shield, coat of arms, is an Irish wolfhound on one side and a beaver on the other. <laughs> and why not? Why not? It's just as good as a unicorn and a lion. What, why not? Uh, will you be going to the coronation? No, you know, we were. I mean, that was the idea, is that when there's a full coronation, all the peers and pe of the realm and their lady wives, uh, the ladies, um, are invited or even commanded to go to the coronation. But two things. A, in 1990, they passed the House of Lords Act, which to all intents and purposes, abolish the House of Lords as it was. So it's reduced to um, an elected body, self-electing body of um, 60 or I think 60 peers. Um, so only those would probably have been invited. And now <clears throat> the new King Charles um, has said he wants to greatly reduce the pomp and ceremony. Um, so no one's sure exactly who's going to be invited, but certainly not all the peers of the realm. Can't you just um, not, not show up with your tuxedo? I, yeah, well, that's the thing. The other thing is, I, you know, I've got all the robes. There are these um, oh. day robes that the peers wear if you're, if you're you know, sitting in the house. But then there are ceremonial robes, which have even more ermine and gold on them, oh my which God. I would have to rent because I don't have a ceremonial. But he's also said... Uh, we're not going to do the robes. We're, you know, it'll probably be morning suits. So um, it's going to be very different than the last coronation. Yeah, I guess so. Considering how much people pay attention to all the pomp and circumstance, I'm surprised they want to cut down on it. I think they want to have more of it and kind of. Well, I think what he's, I think quite, he's, they're very smart. And I think he feels that 
let's spend the money and the pomp and circumstance and all that uh, on something that the public can share uh, out in the streets with concerts and uh, pr processions and marching bands and all that, rather than inside the doors of uh, Westminster Abbey, where you've just got this kind of um, club of elite rich mm. royal personages. So I think right. they're going to make that side of it more um, ceremonial. And then all the pomp and circumstance will happen as a way for the, the people can share in it, which I think is very smart. So they'll feel more, um, take more ownership on it. Uh, now, in the meantime, you're you're on General Hospital right now, isn't that correct? I am, yes. I'm all, at the moment, I am, it's sort of coming towards the end of my tenure, I think. I'm the big bad guy. Um, Ooh, that must be fine. And it's been great. I've been loving, I've been having such a great time. It is so fun. Um, you know, it's true. The devil gets all the best tunes. Um, and But he's become so evil. He's been oh. so mean and done such dreadful things that there's really no salvation. I thought, you know, halfway through, I thought, well, maybe, you know, he's been a bit wicked, but, you know, he's redeemable. Well, he kind of sailed past oh. the red line some time ago and, and crossed the line and is now really pretty irredeemable so i think in the next couple of weeks um uh there's probably going to be some hideous uh climactic fate uh in store for him so we'll see where that goes sounds juicy sounds juicy we'll have to keep watching uh well let's talk a little bit about movies for this last season uh what did you like uh, for 2022 uh, I was very glad to see uh, everything um, everywhere all at once when I, I thought that was a uh, remarkable movie um, <clears throat> on so many levels. I think it was absolutely a movie that hit its moment. Um, we're in a world since really 2001 and then 2016 where a lot of what we feel anchors us in society has been torn up. I think we feel very unmoored um, in the world that we're living in. Truth is suddenly up for grabs. Reality is up for grabs. Mm. Relationships are up for grabs. Definitions are up for grabs. Everyone is sort of confused as to what's going on. And it feels a bit like the ship has just come unanchored. Um, and so a movie that deals with that and says there is no one reality there's a multiverse and all of it's true all at once um and there is no anchor the only thing that you can anchor yourself in is in each of your lives love and connection and uh, belonging and and family are sort of things that you have to hold on to mm -hmm. so i thought at the time this moment in time that sort of message was incredibly uh, relevant. It's not anything new or unique, but I thought it was said in an extraordinarily creative way. I agree. I agree. Speaking of family, I understand you have a grandson? Yeah, he has Julian. Julian Paul Shaughnessy Tanners or Tanners Shaughnessy, depending on what day it is. Will he uh, Will he be a baron in his day at some point? No, I'm afraid it all comes to a, a, a shuddering halt because it's the still primogeniture on um, 
inherited titles in Britain. So the girls aren't allowed to inherit. So <clears throat> because I have two girls and my brother has three girls, um, it ends. It, if, if if my brother outlived me, it would go to my brother mm -hmm. and then it would go to his son. But he's got three girls. I have two girls. So it's done. <clears throat> ah, now I see why Henry VIII was so uh, determined. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thank you so very much and we'll be in touch. Great. Thanks, Harry. Bye now. Bye-bye. And now it's time for my favorite film of this episode. It is The Elephant Whisperers. This is the first documentary I've reviewed for this series and the first short film. It has a story by Priscilla Gonzalez and was directed by Kartiki Gonzalez, who happens to be Priscilla's daughter. It won the Academy Award this year for Best Short Documentary and has a score of 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, an online review website, which is the highest possible rating that very few films have garnered. It is also stunningly beautiful, like a series of Rousseau paintings come to life. Where to begin with this film? It's only 39 minutes long, but every frame is lovingly crafted. It took the filmmakers five years to complete this, and in my humble opinion, it was well worth it. As for a story, it's fairly basic. A middle-aged indigenous couple in India, Baman and Belly, are caretakers for sick and abandoned baby elephants. We follow them as they raise one, then two of these darling creatures, nursing them back to health with abundant love and care. So, what's not to like about watching baby elephants? They're clearly sentient beings, that realization being the reason there are no circus elephants anymore, right up there with the end of whaling. To watch these thousand-pound babies cavort and communicate with their human parents is what we're all here for, and it's set in the gloriously unspoiled beauty of the Mudu Manai National Park in India, a reserve set aside just for elephant rehab. <laughs> Doesn't it make you feel good to hear that phrase, elephant rehab? <laughs> I should also talk about the filmmaking itself. As I said, it's lovingly crafted, and it's possibly the most beautiful visual film of any movie this year. There's also a hypnotic rhythm to the whole thing, as we are gradually slowed down to take in images and scenes in a leisurely pace, as though we were walking with the elephants themselves, experiencing their stunning natural world, a world of monkeys, tigers, and leopards, waterfalls and forests, and best of all, of people living in harmony amongst all of this. And there's no force-feeding of danger and peril like so many nature programs pull on us. Will the seal escape the shark? Will the cheetah pounce on the gazelle? Will the Venus flytrap devour the fly? Will the producers find a way to manipulate their footage into some harsh life-and-death narrative? Please, this is not that movie. This is much more gentle, much more soulful. What stayed with me the most about this was an aspect of what I would call the eternal. Bauman and Belly are living a very rustic existence to our westernized eyes, an existence that seems practically untouched by the 21st or even the 1st century. That's how rustic their lives are. But they seem to want for nothing. They love what they do. They clearly love their elephant babies and are clearly loved right back. And ecologically speaking, there's no drum beating here. There's no strident message, other than allowing us to quietly observe a devoted couple living as humans seem to have been meant to live. These people are blissful. They are helping the creatures life has put in front of them, with patience, consideration, and kindness, which I think is the highest calling for anyone. 
If you're fond of baby elephants, and believe me, you will be by the time this gem of a short movie is over, you'll find the whole experience refreshing, possibly even renewing. It's a testament to a quote from a couple of shaggy-haired college dropouts. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Well, that's my program for this fine month of April 2023. Please join me every first Monday of the month at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on 92.1 WOMR and 91.3 WFMR or online at www.womr.org. My thanks to Lord Charlie Shaughnessy for joining me today, and as always, my heartfelt thanks to the talented Mr. Dunn. Thanks also to my darling wife, Lynn, and to you, my dear listeners. My name is Harry Kaysen, and I am the Movie Knight. Goodbye, and good movies. <laughs>